It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. He's the man who helped shape two of President Joe Biden's most important speeches. New York Times bestselling author, renowned presidential historian, and Pulitzer Prize winner, John Meacham. I chose his book, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels, as one of the books that have helped me through challenging times. Now, when America seems more divided than ever, John Meacham is here to remind us that even in the darkest chapters of our nation's history, there is always a way to find hope. Hello, John Meacham, all the way from Nashville. <laughs> Welcome to Super Soul. Hello, Ms. Winfrey. Uh, Oprah, you, you know you call me Oprah John, for God's sakes. Come on here. <laughs> I want to get to talking about the book in a moment, but first I want to ask you about two of the most important speeches of our current time that you helped write, President Biden's inauguration speech, and before that, his victory speech. What was foremost on your mind? What were you told? What were the themes you wanted to land? Was it a daunting task? I'll start at the end. Yes, it was very daunting, absolutely terrifying in some ways. You know, I'd never written speeches before. Vice President Biden was uh, a great friend and had been really kind, particularly about the book we're talking about. We'd done a couple of public events together. And as the campaign unfolded, I'd never been really involved in politics much, except as an observer. But we were clearly fighting for the essence of the nation last year and really the previous five years. And so I was honored to be asked to help him. The thing about speech writing is you want it to be fully the person speaking. And in fact, I don't even like talking about it because if you're gonna to choose to serve in a kind of public way by doing that, the words are in fact his once they come out of his mouth. But he's been very open about my contributions, very generous about them. I think the key theme for President Biden is he really does believe that we're in a struggle for the soul of the country. He believes that if our better angels don't take flight, then we've seen in the last five years, in the last five months, we've seen how close we can come to fracturing and losing everything. And the thing about President Biden is all great leaders are empathetic. He has suffered so much 
his personal story is in many ways soaked in sorrow. And yet he has resilient and determinedly come back again and again. I think one of the key things about him actually is he thought it was all over. He thought he was done when President Obama left office. Mm -hmm. And I think the country is going to be in a much better place because he has taken that suffering and that sense of service and he doesn't have anything left to prove. And turned it into empath. It's made him a great empath. And do you think he would have, because I spoke to him shortly after Bo had passed, and we all know that Bo wanted him to run. Do you think he would have run had Bo not passed? I don't think so. I think he was going to be focused on Bo's career. Now, the 45th president, our former president, has changed so much that it's hard to say. Uh, I suspect Bo, whom I knew slightly, would have gone to his father in 2017 and 2018 and said, we need you. Yeah. Well, I have to say, when I read your book, I think a couple of years ago, the first time, when it first came out, it reassured me that no matter what you're going through, our country can bounce back because we've been through really, really, really challenging times. Was that your intention in writing it? It absolutely was. One of the things that President Biden and I disagree about, but he has the nuclear code, so he wins, is sometimes he'll say, this is not who we are when something outrageous will happen. Yeah. I think it is who we are. Yeah. We need to be different, but it is who we are. We need to contain the bad and underscore the good. But I I think absolutely we have, the country is forged in crisis. It's forged in the tension between hate and fear and love and hope. And every era is a struggle just to get to the good side 51% of the time. I'm neither Democrat nor Republican, but there are people, 70, at least 70 million other people who feel that the Democrats are the reason why the soul of America is lost. So have we been at a point in our history where, well, we certainly have been at a point because we had a civil war over it, but have we had multiple times where we were this divided and could come together? I think that the, the key analogy, there are two decades that count the most. One is the 1850s, as you allude to, but that required a civil war. But the other is 100 years ago. 100 years ago, you could not have voted. I, um, I, I, I'm sitting on my land in Maui. I could not have owned land. No. I could not have owned no. land as a woman, yeah. Couldn't have owned land, couldn't have voted. The Ku Klux Klan had been refounded on the Saturday after Thanksgiving in 1915. Two to six million Klansmen marched. They joined. Five governors were members of the Klan. Texas and Georgia, not that surprising given our history. Colorado, Indiana, and Oregon had governors who were members of the KKK. Five United States senators, about 25 House members. The 1924 Democratic National Convention went to 103 ballots because there were 200 Klan delegates there who would not vote for Al Smith, the governor of New York, because he was an Irish Catholic. And they were against immigrants, they were against Catholics, they were against Jews, they were against blacks. They didn't like women's suffrage. And this was a mainstream movement. So you have to ask the question, how did we get out of it? The press helped, the story helped. You know this in your bones. 
tell the story yeah, yeah. you want to become. Yeah. Tell the story. And they told a good story. The courts did a good job. The presidents, Harding and Coolidge, did the right thing. That is not a sentence you have heard in a long time. The pulpit did a pretty good job. And we overcame it by the end of the 1930s, thankfully, because imagine how much harder Franklin Roosevelt's job when one out of five American men were out of work in 1932-33, how much harder it would have been to overcome the Depression if there had been a six, seven million fascist army right. ready to march. So I think 100 years ago is a pretty good example. Um, these symptoms, these forces, racism, nativism, xenophobia, isolationism, they're perennial. And they're perennial because they're human. And driven by fear, as you say on page four, driven by fear of the unknown and tend to be spiked in periods of economic and social stress, a period like our own. Yep. Edmund Burke said, there's no more unreasoning emotion than fear. And I think we all know that in our own lives. That's the thing about history, which I can't emphasize enough. The history of the United States is the history of the American people, for good and for ill, for light and for dark, because a republic is the sum of its parts. It's a human undertaking. I know in my life that if I do the right thing 50% of the time, that's a heck of a good day. And I don't make it very often. And so the country itself doesn't make it as often as it should. The key thing, the reason I wanted to write the book, the reason I believe in Joe Biden so strongly, is that you can be in favor of the journey toward a more perfect union if you understand that that union has become more perfect the more widely we've opened our arms and the more we've opened our hearts. And that's not a homily. That's not a Sunday school lesson. That is a clinical, cold, historical fact. And for those 74 million people who voted the other way, the story that has to be told is that we have grown stronger the more widely we've opened our arms, not weaker. We're the most powerful nation you can possibly imagine. My friend Fareed Zakaria likes to say, you know, the largest air force in the world is the United States Air Force. The second is the United States Navy's. We're doing just fine. And so we have to understand that that story of strength has come the more diverse we've become. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break. No two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas' world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. 
Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. Well, in her inauguration poem, The Hill We Climb, Amanda Gorman wrote, and when you saw her, did was that something? Oh. Was she it's something? It's just incredible. Yes. Thank God Biden spoke first. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was, she was pretty incredible, just stepped right into herself. But what she wrote is somehow we weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. Would you agree with her, obviously, from writing this book? That's, I, yes, that we are simply an unfinished story. We are absolutely, and President Obama is brilliant on this. We are an unfinished story. The story will never be finished. You know, William Faulkner talked about the last red and dying evening. Until then, we are going to be in the process of becoming. Langston Hughes taught us this. This is who we are, is that we're all human beings on this journey. But the thing about being American is it's both a blessing, but it's also a burden. And the burden is, if you look like me, I'm a boringly heterosexual white Southern male Episcopalian. Things work out for me in this country, almost always. My obligation is to follow the gospel injunction that to whom much is given, much is expected. And so if people like me don't say to people who voted for the other guy or the former guy as Biden's calling him, if we don't say no, America is better when we're open and not when we're closed, when we build bridges and not walls, then I think we're failing in that mission. And that's the story to tell. Well, you titled the book, The Soul of America. And I asked this question a lot on Super Soul. What is the soul? So how do you define the soul of America? In Hebrew and in Greek, soul means breath or life. When God breathed life into mankind in Genesis, that word could be translated as soul. When Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, life could be translated as soul. So I think it's the essence of who we are. I think it's what makes us who we are. And I also see it as not entirely good or entirely bad. I think it's an arena of contention between those worst instincts, our appetites and our ambitions, against our better angels and our impulses for grace and for love. Well, I was mentioning what you said on page four before, extremism, racism, nativism, isolationism, all of those occur in a period like our own. But you know, John, the country is so divided right now, it's, 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 it's like people don't even share the same reality. And I know and I believe many of the things that you say in The Soul of America, but then I think all of those occurrences even a hundred years ago, were without the power of social media, where falsehoods get repeated over and over and over again, and in a matter of hours, something that started out as being just as a negative force becomes this vitriolic force field. So how, when we don't even share the same reality, can you begin to bridge a divide? Well, this is something the president's thinking about every day. And I've talked to him about it. You tell the truth. 
you insist on the truth, you don't give in, you don't flinch, you don't coddle or appease the lie, you tell the truth and you do it again and again and again. And we're not gonna reach 70 million, but let's say we peel off 10 or 20 of those million, which is kind of where we are, right? I mean, 40% of the country is almost always encased in their own, their own world. But you can get 55%, you can get 60%. I agree with you on social media. The ambient reality for folks has become what they choose to see as opposed to what they would ordinarily see in the course of life. But the only way to fight that that I can think of is you meet them where they are. You get in that space and you insist on the truth. As a person who has studied history, how did we get this far off track? Because things like scientific facts or simple truths that you were talking about are now being yeah. debated every minute of every day on social media. I think it's a story that begins in the Second World War. And I do think this is largely on that the right wing in America is responsible for this. There's the sense of conspiracy, the sense that the world is organized against you. It begins, frankly, with the, with the uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Well, how can Roosevelt it be just one Yelp. side? Nothing is ever just one side. I disagree. I disagree. I, I, do you know many progressives who live in a conspiracy world? I don't. I, this is what I mean about telling the truth. And I'm not saying all Republicans, are, I'm, I'm not saying that. But when you look at the destabilizing elements in our culture, when you look at the cause, which is what you just asked, what got us to this point? Right. What got us to this point is a concerted number of right-wing folks who have flirted or totally adopted white supremacy and a kind of Christian nationalism, and they believe that the world is arrayed against them. And it begins, I think the Pearl Harbor of the culture wars that we're talking about is not Roe v. Wade, but is the school prayer decision in the early 1960s when a court largely appointed by a Republican president said, no, you can't say the Lord's Prayer in a public school. And you then go 10 years later, Roe versus Wade, four justices appointed by Richard Nixon a Republican president, and you begin to see there are a lot of cultural conservatives who began to see that, wait, even when we elect a president, our values don't get reflected. You then put in the, both the social media and the cable world where you can actually live minute to minute in a virtual reality. And what is the common denominator there? The common denominator is resentment that there are other people telling you what to think. There are other people shaping how you and your families should live. And that sense of powerlessness, I think, is what drove the rise of the 45th president, who rose on white resentment, on lies about President Obama, and a sense that the world was organized against these folks and they were ready to hear that story. Thank you, that was a very clear explanation of how we got to here. Everybody, because right, it's been coming for a long time, and I think what's really pertinent is 
people were ready to hear that story. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. You say there's a natural tendency in American political life to think that things were always better in the past. The passions of previous years fade to be inevitably replaced by the passions of the present. Why do you think we romanticize our history in this way? And how does it impact where we are right now? I think there are two sins I know I, I commit all the time. One is there's a kind of reflexive nostalgia. Things had to have been better. I mean, how many times a day do someone ask you, God, how can we get back to Normal, X? yeah. All right, so tell me a year. So let's say, oh, I wish we could be in 1961. John Lewis wouldn't want to be in 1961. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't want to be in, in 1961. 1961 no. Again, you look like me, I'm fine, you know. So what, what is it exactly that you want to go back to? The other is this kind of narcissism of the present. This idea that, we, this is the reason I do what I do, is I do think we can learn from this, not because it was easier, but because it was roughly the same. And so this, this tendency to romanticize it, I guess that's just really human behavior, thinking about the way things were versus where you are right now, and thinking that things were always better. I think so. I, th I think that it's, it's an understandable one, right? I mean, mm -hmm. what, what do all the great stories begin? Once upon a time. But there's really not a once upon a time in history. When you wrote The Soul of America, I understand that then Vice President Biden called you to discuss it. Is that true? That is true. Okay. He called up and read passages to me, oh. which I thought, this is what should happen to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife wouldn't do that. <laughs> You told the New York Times that he asked you how the country can come out of a crisis stronger, not weaker. So I want to know, how did you answer that? That you remind us what truly makes us great. You may remember there was a phrase a while back about making America great again. I think the story has to be what, what does make us great? What are the moments we look back on and we commemorate and celebrate? What do those moments have in common? What those moments have in common is that they're about openness and about expanding opportunity, not limiting it. The guys hitting the beach at Normandy were not doing it to prevent liberty. They were doing it to free people. We honor liberators, not captors. We honor those who make possibility. And so what I said to Vice President Biden at the time, and what I say to him, if he ever asks down the road, is how do we get out of it? Tell us the story of how 
we got to a place where we want to defend the country. And what is the country we want to defend? And the country I want to defend is not the country of the Klan, but the country of John Lewis. I want to defend the country of Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall, not the America of Bull Connor. And that shouldn't be all that controversial. And I know that there's this deep reaction in the country. The reason I do what I do is I think that history has a chance to go to your very good point about different realities. At least history has a chance to appeal to folks on the right and on the left, because it's the only common data set we have in human affairs. We can argue about the interpretation all, all, all day long, but history tells us that when we bind together, you ask about President Biden and, and writing speeches, you know, St. Augustine defined a nation the best, best definition I've ever seen, and President Biden used this in his inaugural address before he was totally upstaged by Ms. Gorman forever. <laughs> Augustine said, a nation is a multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their love. I'm gonna repeat it. A multitude of rational beings united, united by the common objects of their love. Hmm. So there are three things in that. There's a multitude, so who are we? There's rationality, so we have to be open to contrary fact. And there's what do we love in common? And America at her best, I would say people at their best, love in common, equality of opportunity, what Lincoln called an open field and a fair chance for everybody. And that's a story you can tell. And I hope that's the story the president continues to tell. Because you know so much about history, during these past four years, you must have felt a certain security that others of us didn't feel. You didn't feel the same anxiety, huh? You know, it's a great question. I felt I was wrong early on. It felt to me like Joe McCarthy and George Wallace. I thought it was a passing thing. I was thinking he'd be a 40% reelect number. And so I misjudged the depth of the appeal and until the 6th, I resisted the Germany in the 30s stuff, but now I don't. The fragility of what we have has been well disguised for a long time. And so I, I do feel, and I'm not being overly Biden-esque about this, I don't think anybody else on that stage last year could have beaten Trump. Yeah. Well, you know, we talk so much about fear here on Super Soul because it's one of the controlling parts of the human experience. I, I think people are either moving in the direction of fear or moving in the, the direction of love and all that fear brings, anxiety, frustration, anger. And when I was watching the insurgents at the Capitol on January 6th, I saw a lot of anger, but I also saw a lot of fear. I saw a lot of people who were afraid of losing things and having things change and themselves losing ground. You say that one of the driving forces behind the darkest periods in American history is fear, for example, fear of freed slaves, fear of educating the freed slaves, fear of immigrants. And we talk a lot about that. I wanna know what role do you think fear has played in the country being so divided and where we are right now? I think it's the consuming reason. I think it's the consuming passion of those who do not believe that 
for instance, President Biden, or broadly put, the system, the constitutional system can work. Even in the winter of 1860, here's an interesting little thing. In the winter of 1860, after Lincoln was elected, Alexander Stevens, James Buchanan himself, all said, you can't just secede from the union because you lost an election. You have to at least wait to see if he's gonna do something that you object to and then secede. And they both said the election unfolded according to constitutional means. So you have no immediate cause to do this. The hyperbole, the fear, the anger, the irrationality, the cult of personality that led to January 6th are all things that have recurred in our history but are, are flowing instead of ebbing right now. And fear, and I think it was Socrates, said that fear is the feeling, the anxiety produced by the sense that you are about to lose something you love. Mm. The anxiety produced yeah. by the fear that you're about to lose something you love. And what do those folks have who were storming up there, threatening Speaker Pelosi and, and the vice president? What they have is their race and their culture. And they fear losing their innate predominance to this changing, shifting country. My argument again and again and again is that we have always been changing and shifting. And we were founded on this idea, imperfectly executed, that in fact, whether you believe only in reason, you know, we're endowed by nature and nature's God, or if you believe in God, we were all created in a way that we should have a fair shot, no matter what we look like. And that's what America's supposed to be. I love you saying that's what America's supposed to be. And I also loved you in the beginning saying, when President Biden says, this isn't who we are, it is who we are. It is who we are. I think that's what this year has taught us. We have to look at the face of who we are, no matter how ugly that is. There are so many beautiful things but also look at the face of ugliness and call that out for what it is. Unquestionably, because if we aren't honest, we're never gonna fix it. Yeah, you we, can't heal a wound that you ignore. Right. It gets worse. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. So how do we ease it, John? I mean, what do we do? How do you reach across the aisle to 74 million people, many of whom don't even believe that Joe Biden was legally elected. How do you reach across the aisle and find a way forward for our country? I believe that you articulate what hope has done in the face of fear. And you say that hope is the opposite of fear. It is. I think, I think fear casts its eyes warily. Fear is a clenched fist. Hope looks out 
looks at the horizon, hope reaches out. And the way I would articulate it is to, to that person who voted the other way, you say you want to make America great again. Tell me what that moment is. And maybe they'll say, well, it's when we beat the Nazis. And I would say, okay, you know who beat the Nazis was Franklin Roosevelt and the private sector. And he failed miserably on Japanese American internment. And it took Harry Truman to desegregate the military. But what were those guys fighting for? Those guys were not fighting for a limited world. They were fighting for a whole new world. To me, the most important question to ask these folks is, what do you want history to say of you? What is the story you want told about yourself? When you saw the insurgents that January 6th, as a historian who was read and knows and understands, what, what were your initial feelings? It's funny, the word insurrection came instantly to mind, even before it was kind of on the Chirons. I quickly thought that the last time this happened, it was an invading foreign force in 1814. I, I was trying to think, is there any analogy? I think I can tell you, the president-elect called and asked me that question that day, had this ever happened? Uh -huh. And I said, yeah, it was, 18, it was 1814 and it was the British Empire. Do you talk to him a lot still? Does he call you? I do, I do, we, we talk occasionally. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of what I think should be great, which should be reassuring to folks, is that what he's trying to do is not look back nostalgically. He's trying to orient these crises. You know, is this like FDR, you know, the, the vaccinations, you know, can you get this done in 100 days? You know, what, what does history tell us? I'm not a policy guy, I'm not a political guy, but you know, there are these human characteristics that recur that I think can be illuminating. What are the qualities that the most successful presidents have? And does Joe Biden have those qualities? I think there are three, and I think he has all of them. Really? Curiosity. You have to want to know what's going on in the world. You have to want to understand where the country fits into that. Thomas Jefferson, John Kennedy, these are immensely curious, Barack Obama, curious people. You have to be candid with us, give it to us straight. FDR said the news is gonna get worse and worse before it gets better and better, and the American people deserve to have it straight from the shoulder. And so when Biden says, I will always level with you, he's working within in that tradition. Uh, you know what I loved about everything Biden's done so far? Let me tell you the thing I love the most because I can't stand when people are mistreated at work. The fact that he came out and said to all of his people, if, any, if I hear anybody mistreating anybody, talking badly anybody, you will be fired. I just thought that is so good for everybody, yep. for every corporate leader, for everybody who's managing anybody in the world. I can't stand when people bully people or, or use their power to put other people down, to make them feel less than. And I thought, I, I don't think he was trying to be brilliant about it, but the way he did it was so excellent. Didn't you? I did. And you know what it had the feel of? This was not a talking point. This was not an HR thing. It was just, this is Joe Biden. The last one is so important and it's right in your wheelhouse. It's empathy. The greatest presidents, the greatest leaders are able to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. Yeah, and I thought that that was the number one thing missing from our former president, if, if, if you don't have 
empathy. It, it's hard to actually have compassion for other people. I mean, there is no compassion for other people or understanding of what people are going through. It's also, I think, the, the central element, not just of great leadership, but great citizenship. All of if it. I'm not, if I'm not able to think out, okay, I live in a red state and I'm paying taxes, but you know what? The blue folks need it today and they might not need it, you know, I might need it then. Empathy is the fuel of democracy. I love that. Empathy is the fuel of democracy. I'm going to be writing that as a quote. Thank you. Somebody write that down for me. Towards the end of the book. We can get a needlepoint pillow. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Towards the end of the book, John, you outline a set of guidelines for how to engage what you call our better angels. I want that for myself. I want that for our country. What are they? You got to enter the arena. You're fine on that. Don't worry. Uh, (laughs) You got to be engaged. You got to be engaged. You have to talk to people who disagree with you. Right, you have to resist tribalism. That's harder. And it's hard. That's harder. And I, I don't hard. like doing it either. But if we don't, then we can't be, it's easy to be empathetic if you already agree with somebody. You know, you gotta, yeah. you gotta do that. But look, families aren't even be able to sit at the same table, certainly during the past four years. I know people who hadn't been home because people in their family believed a way that they, they did not feel that they could sit at the same table and share a meal with them. So you got to be able to have conversations with people who disagree with you, okay? Unsurprisingly, you got to keep history in mind. History should be able to give you a sense of proportion about this. And right now, we're having the right conversation, right? This is a big, vital, existential problem. And I wonder if we had been here in 1968, Dr. King is murdered, Senator Kennedy is murdered, Chicago disintegrates, Election Day 1968, Richard Nixon wins 42%, Humphrey wins 40 but George Wallace wins 13.5% of the popular vote and carries five states in 1968. So 50 years ago, an explicit segregationist got 13.5% of the popular vote. And so, again, just because something's happened before doesn't mean it's not happening now. But because it's happened before, we can at least see what ameliorated it along the way. Again, our native region was under functional apartheid until the day before yesterday. Now, when we see voter suppression, when we see the inequalities and the inequities revealed by COVID, I'm not saying we congratulate ourselves, but We got the Civil Rights Act. We got the Voting Rights Act. So if we got that in the face of state-sanctioned white supremacist violence, when John Lewis walked into troopers, he was walking into troopers. Think about that. State troopers. An armed force for an apartheid order 50 years ago. And again, because we don't do that anymore doesn't mean, oh, everything's fine. But it does mean that we have to see what, what was it that put those folks on that bridge? And it was faith in God, and somehow or another, it was faith in America. Doc Rivers said something, Biden quoted it at Gettysburg. He said at some point during the, the, this horrible last year, think what it takes for a black man to love America. Yeah. Hugely profound remark. Think what it takes for a black man to love America. 
it's easy for me to love America. Why wouldn't I? But that's not what the country's supposed to be. The country's supposed to be, we are all created equal. We go into life's race. We try to rise as far as we can on our merits. And if some folks are held back by institutional structures, we have to do something about that. You say the opposite of fear is hope. What gives you hope for the future of the soul of America? It's a really simple answer. Uh, Joe Biden won a really ferocious, competitive presidential election talking about how he wanted to restore that soul. And it was closer than a lot of people hoped or wanted, but 81 million people said, this is what we want. That number, his percentage of the popular vote was more than Truman, more than John Kennedy, more than Nixon in 68, more than Carter in 76, about equal with Reagan in 80, more than Clinton or George W. Bush got in four different elections. This was a perfectly respectable, strong victory. And I think that that was a majority of us saying, let's have a real conversation about what we should be and who we should be. You end this book with this saying that for all of our darker impulses, for all of our shortcomings and for all of the dreams denied and deferred, the experiment begun so long ago, carried out so imperfectly, is worth the fight. There is in fact no struggle more important and non-nobler than the one we wage in the service of those better angels who however besieged are always ready for battle. Whew, that's a beautiful, beautiful passage. And I, I just pray that you are right and that the better angels will soon prevail. You believe that to be so? I do. I don't have any alternative. <laughs> As Winston Churchill once said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing once they've exhausted every other possibility. And Lord knows we've done that. Well. Lord knows, I thank you for joining me here today from Nashville. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, John Meacham. <laughs> the Soul of America, the Battle for Our Better Angels is available anywhere books are sold. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.